The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Church, would you bow with me as we pray? Father, in these next few minutes, remove me from what's said so that what is said is a clear and consistent message from you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you already been blessed this morning? I have. I have. And it is such a joy to be with you today. You have heard me say before, I love this church and I do. And uh, it is a particular treat for me. I didn't know that they were gonna be here, but you know, I can't, I can't get into this without uh, just saying a word uh, about Brother Mike and Miss Mary and about how much I love them and about how much impact that they have had, they are having, they will have on me and so many others. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're here today. And he gave me a box of books that weighs about 800 pounds that I've got to <laughs> carry back with me. I don't know. I don't know how he thought that I'm strong enough to carry all. I know he didn't carry them in. Okay. I know that, but I'll get them back to the library uh, for you. Well, it is a great honor to be here again, and uh, I looked, uh, I keep, uh, you know, keep files on where I've spoken so that I can go back and look at those and make sure that I didn't say, that I don't say exactly the same thing, you know, when I go back as I did before. Not to say that anybody would remember what I said in January of 2010 when I was here last, but just, just to make sure. You know, when I got dressed uh, this morning and uh, my wife who has gone to our home church with our daughter uh, who got out of graduate school a couple weeks ago. They're, they're at Shades Mountain Baptist Church there in Birmingham today. And so when I came out after I got dressed, she looked at me and she said, you gonna wear that tie with that suit? And I said, well, I was thinking about it. And she said, well, it'd be nice if you wear, wear a tie that would go with that suit. <laughs> and I said, just for that, I'm going to stick with this tie that I put on. <laughs> I, I think she bought it for me anyway. But, but, uh, but to those of you who have already commented on my tie this morning, and there have been four of you so far. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. Well, okay. Never happens, to, never happens to you, does it, Mike? Yeah? Okay. Okay. This week, you may have missed it, but this week, in the news, the Gallup organization, you know, that does all the polling, you know, they put out their new moral acceptability survey results. Moral acceptability survey results. And this is what those of us in higher education call a longitudinal study, you know, that's a, uh, 
a kind of an academic word for looking at opinion changes over a long period of time, okay? And they revisit this year by year by year. They've been doing this, I don't know how long, long period of time. The survey on moral acceptability, and I'm not going to go into, this is not the sermon right here, okay? This is just the setup. I want to make sure everybody understands, this is just the setup, okay? Moral acceptability survey. And the summary for the results of the most recent moral acceptability survey, I can give it to you very briefly. The things that you and I used to call immoral, by and large, are not as immoral as they used to be according to the vast majority of the American people who are surveyed. And so you can Google that when you go home and take a look at it, but that's, that's the headline, all right? So we get this kind of news, you and I, we get this kind of news. It's not a surprise, we know, we know, it's not a surprise. But we get a little angry about it, I do. I get a little angry about it, I'll confess. And we say, whose fault is it? And then we start blaming people. Well, you know, it's the media, uh, it's politicians, uh, it's Hollywood, it's, it's all that. Well, guess what? This is a hard sermon today. Now, you all know that I'm not a preacher. God didn't call me to preach. And you remember in a little while, you figure out why God didn't call me to preach, okay? Okay, so, so this is not a real sermon, I guess. But it's still a pretty hard message because tomorrow morning, when we all get up, and I'm preaching to myself today, if it fits you, then, you know, join in. When I get up in the morning, I'm going to look in the mirror. I'm not going to be wearing this tie again tomorrow morning. I'm going to be looking in the mirror and I'm going to be seeing the fault for this because it's me. And it may be you. It may be you. I'm sure that Brother Mike over the years has mentioned something called the Barna Group. It's a group that does research, especially about uh, uh, religious viewpoints, that sort of thing in the population at large. They do a lot of work and survey an awful lot of people. And a guy named David Kenneman with the Barna Group came out with this book a few years ago, not too long ago. It's called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And it especially looks at why so many uh, younger people look on Christianity as, uh, or Christians as hypocrites. Well, here are a couple of, couple of uh, paragraphs, short paragraphs out of this book. I, I don't like reading to people, but they said it better than I can say it. So here we go. In virtually every study we conduct, representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. For instance, based on a study released recently, we found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-born-agains. When asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, here we go, this starts to get heavy, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, cons to consult a medium or psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, 
and to have said mean things behind another person's back. No difference. And then this. In statistical and practical terms, this means the two groups are essentially, the two groups, believers, non-believers, the two groups are essentially no different from each other. If these groups of people were in two separate rooms and you were asked to determine based on their lifestyles alone which room contained the Christians, you would be hard-pressed to find much difference. Well, now that's a happy thought on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Unfortunately, I think we can acknowledge there's too much truth in those two paragraphs that I read for you. There's too much truth. Since this is not a real sermon, I'm going to do something that your longtime pastor would never, ever have done. I'm going to base this not full sermon on a verse fragment. The worst thing that a preacher, a real preacher, could ever do. Verse fragment. I mean, it's dangerous, isn't it? Brother Mike, say amen. Yes, it's dangerous. Okay. Here we go. I was sitting in a Bible study a while back, and I was doing what some of you all do. I was kind of wandering around and not paying full attention to what the leader of the Bible study was doing. I was reading ahead. Okay. I'm quick. I was reading ahead. And we were looking in First uh, Peter, and uh, I kept scanning on down, and I saw a fragment of a verse that caught my attention unlike anything had in a long, long time. And it is First Peter chapter 4, verse 3a. <laughs> verse 3a. And in the NIV, this is the line. You have spent enough time in the past. You have spent enough time in the past. This particular passage is where Peter's writing to the early church, giving a lot of admonitions about what they need to be careful with, what they need to be watching for. He gets to this particular verse, and you can read all of it later. He gets to this particular verse, and he says in the NIV, for you have spent enough time in the past. And this is the deal. He's saying essentially, you have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. Amen. Now, why don't you live that way? Because you have spent enough time in the past doing all of those things, being all of those things, thinking all of those things. And now, now, because you've been redeemed, it's time to move on. You have spent enough time in the past. The, the King James beautifully says it, for the time past of our life may suffice us. Okay? The message, John Peterson's the message, says you've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life. The NLV says in the past you gave enough of your life over to living like the people who do not know God. You spent enough time in the past. So if you're here this morning, and you're like I am, and you've been redeemed 
but your life is not the truest reflection of that redemption, then maybe you want to listen. If you don't, I'll be over soon enough, okay? <laughs> so here we go. And you know, you know that even though I'm not a preacher, I've still got three points for you this morning, okay? Amen. All right. So three simple steps that we might be able to take that would prompt us toward living like we have been redeemed. First thing, first point. We have to embrace the change. We have to embrace the change. And we say, well, that ought to be pretty easy. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that easy? I mean, isn't that what it's all about? That, that you accept Christ and that reflects change. And so we're there. And intellectually, I guess that may be true, but emotionally, in our hearts, we have to actually embrace the change for it to count in the way that we live. And I'm going to illustrate this, and I, uh, I think when I was here before, I gave you an abbreviated version uh, of, of some of my personal experience related to this. But I'll go into just a little bit more detail today, and it is my Alabama story. It's my Sanford story. And very quickly, as, as, as quickly as I can make it, and I'm always glad when my wife is not here or not present when I tell this story because she comes out a lot better in the story than I do, and I just don't like to admit all that in front of, front of friends. But um, uh, I've been at Sanford, been in Alabama now for eight years, and uh, I was in Arkansas. I was president of my alma mater over there and having a great time. I and mean, how many people get to be president of their college alma mater? You know, not very many, so that was fun. And uh, all of our families, both sides, as far back as you could go, all in Arkansas. Our daughter was about to enter her junior year in high school, and, uh, you know, not a good time to be thinking about moving a daughter when she's going to be a junior in high school. I was, I was having a great life, I thought. And then uh, Albert Brewer uh, was uh, chair of the Sanford Search Committee. Many of you know Governor Brewer, nice guy. He called me uh, one, one day, and somehow they had managed to get my name as a, as a prospect for the Sanford presidency. So he called and, uh, and, and asked if I might be interested in sending in materials, and I, uh, I, I listened to him for a while, and, and I said, no, thank you, I, I don't think I'm your person. And so we talked for a little while longer, and then he, uh, he did what I confessed to many people. Uh, he said, well, will you, will you pray about it? And this is where, you know, I lied to Governor Brewer. I told him I'd pray about it, but I knew, I knew that I was not going to pray about it because I knew God was not going to move me to Alabama. I knew that. I knew that. And so I, just to get him off the phone, I said, sure, I'll pray about it. So he said, I'll call you back in a few days. And then I forgot about it, and he called back in, in a few days. And uh, he came on the phone. He said, well, did you, did you pray about what we talked about the other day? And, and uh, so then I lied to him the second time. I said, well, sure, I did. I did, but I hadn't because I knew that God was not going to move me to Alabama. And then he called back a few other times. Uh, fast forward, we get to, uh, 
to October. This starts in, in August. He calls me in October. It was on my wife's birthday, in fact. I can remember that. It was on my wife's birthday. And he said, look, we know you're not a candidate. We know you're not coming to, to Sanford, but we need somebody. Yeah, he really said this. He said, we need somebody of your expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To come over and consult with us in this process. You would be a great help to us. Well, that appealed to my ego, uh, of course, and so, uh, and I'm a helpful person, so, oh, I can, I can do that. Of course, you know, here I am, a, a guy growing up in Arkansas, I didn't know anything, uh, okay, I didn't know, I didn't know that that was uh, a technique that people would use to kind of draw you into the problem, I didn't understand that, and I said, uh, so sure, I'll do that. And so then I got off the phone with Governor Brewer, I called my wife. And I said, uh, Governor Brewer called, uh, you know, I'm going to go over and consult with them about finding a president for Sanford. She said, you're going to do what? I said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them. She said, you don't understand. You do not understand what's going on. I said, oh, no, you're wrong. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go over and, and help. And so... Uh, I came over a few days later and uh, spent about four hours with Governor Brewer and two or three others. And, and then uh, I called my wife back about 11 o'clock that night and I said, okay, uh, you were right. <laughs> I said, you were right. I was, I was wrong. Um, this is not what I thought. And, and we're going to have to start praying about this. What I said was, they, they played me like a cheap fiddle. That is what I said. That's what I said. And it was true. And I said, we're going to have to pray for it, pray about it. And so we did. We then, as a family, we began, and it turned way too fast. They, they narrowed the search down, and they wanted me to come over and interview formally and all this stuff. And so we had an intense time of prayer for several days as we were trying to come to a decision. And I mean, this may not sound like a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to us. I mean, we were, we were where we were going to be for life. I was doing what I wanted to do for life. And so my prayer was, God, leave me where I am, please. Just, just leave me where I am. I don't want to start over. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get to know all these Alabama people. I don't, I don't want this. I don't, I don't want this. Let me stay where I am, please. Let me stay where I am. So that was my prayer. And then we got to the end of the time when I was going to have to give some word. And it was early in the morning. It was one or two o'clock in the morning. And I was going to have to give word the next day. And I'm with my wife, and, and she's crying, and I'm crying, and it's all of that. And so she says to me, I don't, Andy, I don't know what is going on with you, but I, I think you are running from God. I did not want my wife to be tw- right twice. I really <laughs> did not. But I didn't have anything to say. I said, let's go to bed. Let's go to bed. We'll talk about it tomorrow. So we did. I got up the next morning. I said, okay, okay, we're going 
we're going to submit, we're going with it, but it may not turn out like we think it's going to turn out. It's going to be public. Everybody's going to know about it. You know, they may come to their senses. They may say they don't want me anyway. And then our effectiveness here will be diminished. It's all of those things. But we're going to, we're going to head with it. So what do you think about that? And she said, I've been ready. I've been ready. My problem was, I really hadn't embraced change. I hadn't. I hadn't. I wanted things to be just like they were. Just exactly like they were. Because I felt all right about that. I didn't want the disruption. I didn't want it. I didn't want any of it. Maybe I didn't want to have to work as hard as I knew I was going to have to work here. Okay? I didn't know how good the food was. Okay? I didn't know that. I had not embraced change. But we have to do it. If we're going to live the redeemed life, we have to do it. Point number one, we have to really, really embrace the change. Point number two, we have to take courage. We have to take courage. Because just embracing the change will die on the vine pretty quickly if we don't have the courage day to day, moment to moment to back all that up. A couple of years ago, we did something at Sanford that uh, I don't make a whole lot of unilateral decisions, but I kind of made a unilateral decision. It was kind of hard. I felt that we needed to have an English as a second language program to assist with bringing students, especially from China, because they've got a lot of language issues, and I felt that we had to have this in order to, to take care of them, but we didn't have the staff, we didn't have the money, we didn't have the facility, we didn't have anything. We didn't even have a place for these students to stay. And I made the decision in essentially April, and we were going to start this in August. And that may sound to you like, well, my goodness, that's a long amount of time. In higher education, you know, that's, that's like an instant. Uh, I mean, we have to form a committee to form a committee to form a committee to form a committee to think about it, okay? And so uh, that, that really is a collapsed time frame. And so it put tremendous strain on our people. And it was hard for a lot of them to make all that happen. Well, we got in our first crop in August. Uh, we had to do homestays with them. We had to line up all the homes and do all of those things. We had to hire the people. We had to do all, all of those things. Lots of stress. Well, fast forward August then to October. I'm in my home church one Sunday morning, and I'm sitting there, and my wife comes, comes in a little bit late, sits down by me, sits on my left side, what you need to know about that is that I am about 100% deaf in my left ear. And so uh, I don't know, if those of you who have hearing loss, if you're this way or not, but, you know, when I'm in a situation like in church where you know you're not supposed to be talking, okay, and somebody will whisper something in my left ear, I will turn and I will go, not understanding anything that they've just had said, but, you know, but, but trying, to, trying to move along. So my wife is, is whispering this in my left ear, and I'm sitting there smiling and not understanding anything. Well, 
I found out later what she was telling me was that um, we were going to have a baptism that morning and, and a couple of our Chinese students were going to be baptized. That's what she was whispering. I'm glad I didn't hear it because the impact that I had that Sunday morning was overwhelming because our pastor extended his, his arm first, his hand first to a, a young girl about 12 years old who came into the baptistry and, and there, the symbolic act, there, lowered into the water, raised to new life, she walked on out and then he extended his arm, his hand, to another person and grasping it was one of those Chinese students who had arrived in August. And he, she steps into the baptistry and he says, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? And she says, yes. She's dropped into the water. She's raised to new life. She steps out. He extends his arm again. And another student from China grasps his hand and steps into the baptistry, lowered into the water, raised to life in Christ. Now, what you need to know is that from August till October, I had started to think, I should never have done this. I should never have put the institution through this much stress in such a short period of time to make this happen. I was of the mind that morning before that service began that I should never have done any of those things. And then, not one, but two of those students came into the baptistry. They had embraced change. Absolutely, they had embraced change. But can you imagine, now it's one thing in Pelham, when we fly under the banner of Christ, but don't you know that it's another thing in China when you fly publicly under the banner of Christ. And so those two young ladies are examples for me of how you do point number two. You take courage because it's worth everything. It's worth everything. Nothing, nothing rises above the level of our salvation in Christ, our walk with Christ. So we embrace change. And then we take courage because we've got to have it for the long run. And those things are kind of turned inward, right? Those, those things are about how we're wired, about embracing change in our life, about taking courage in our life. But there's a third point that I think is absolutely crucial for living the redeemed life in practice. Point number three, find compassion. Embrace change. Take courage. Find compassion. Because the compassion, then, is what we do with the overflow. It's what the Holy Spirit does with the overflow in our lives. If we're truly living for Christ, then we find compassion 
because there's a world here that needs it desperately. They need Christ and we are exemplars for Christ in demonstrating that compassion. Real quickly now, I, I don't, uh, Mike, I don't have a clue about what time it is, okay? I left my watch up there and I'm too old to climb back up there and take a look. So here we go. Last month, in my office, we interviewed, five or six of us, interviewed three students who were about to graduate from Sanford for something called the John Pittman Spirit Award. John Pittman has been a trustee at Sanford since 1953, okay? He's now, I think, 93 years old. And so they, several years ago, created this John Pittman Spirit Award to present to a graduate of Sanford that had just embodied the qualities of all of those things that we'd love to see in, in Sanford students. And so it's an honor just to be nominated. Several students were nominated. We'd narrowed the list to three that would be interviewed. And so we were having those interviews in my office. Three young ladies, all very different, very different backgrounds, different parts of the country, three very different students. The first student came into my office and we began to ask her questions and I didn't ask many questions. I was letting everybody else do that and we got to near the end of the interview and uh, really uh, on a lark, I, I said, I hadn't planned to ask the question, I just said, um, tell me who at Sanford during the past four years has had the greatest impact on you? What one person has had the greatest impact on you? And this young lady said, well, I think it would be Jeremy Towns. Uh, she said, Jeremy has really, really helped me. And I said, uh, how is that? And she said, well, I think I'm a lot better Christian because of the influence of Jeremy. Well, Jeremy Towns graduated in December last year. He played football for us. He's going to start in med school this coming fall. He's about as big as a double-wide refrigerator. I mean, he's a great, great, great big guy. You ought to see the two of us standing side by side. You can get the, the, the image there, okay? Jeremy came to Sanford not knowing Christ, but he accepted Christ while he was there, and he is so passionate. And even though, though he, he uh, played football, consumed a lot of his time, worked hard with his studies, consumed a lot of his time, somehow he has found a way to show that compassion that he experienced in Christ to a whole range of people. So I wasn't too surprised that the young lady said Jeremy Towns. Second young lady came in for her interview. Perfect answers, just a beautiful, beautiful exchange. We got to the end of that and I thought, I'm gonna ask my question again, so I said, Tell me, who at Sanford had the greatest influence on you these past four years? She paused for a moment and she said, I think it would be Jeremy Towns. I said, why is that? She said, well, he just poured so much of himself into me on helping me to understand Christ. And, you know, I think I see in Jeremy evidence of Christ. So she left my office 
You know where this is headed. The third student came into my office. She sat there. We did the interview. She also provided great answers to all the questions. And then I asked the question at the end. Who most influenced you during your time at Sanford? She said, well, that would be Jeremy Towns. Last week, I got an email message from Jeremy. I told him at the end of the semester that in med school and as he becomes much more successful in life, it's going to be a lot harder for him to live with humility because a lot of people are going to be telling him how great he is. And here I'm using it as an example in a sermon this morning. Jeremy wrote back to me these few sentences. He said, I no longer see humility as something that passively happens, but as something I must fight for. I must be willing to stay up late at night and pray for humility. I must bow before King Jesus. Isn't humility the doorway to compassion? Isn't it? Isn't true humility the doorway toward finding compassion? I believe it is. I believe it is. If we want to see change in this world that God has created. We have to change. We have to embrace change. We have to take courage for the long run. And then if we care anything about that faith, we have to find the compassion to share it in a meaningful way with others. Sustaining progress, I think, is about one or two breakthroughs. But it's really about making the right decision thousands and thousands and thousands of times about the very little things. We can't do that on our own. But we have a Savior that will help us every moment of every day. I don't know where you all are in your in your path this morning. I have no idea. I've been preaching to myself for the last several minutes. But I do know that here, the Holy Spirit is present. If this morning you have, you have never made that first decision about turning everything over to God through relationship with Jesus Christ, you're in a good place to talk with people about that. Maybe make that decision right here this morning, either where you are or down here. Maybe you're here and you're visiting and you're realizing that, that this place just seems so real. I've got to be a part of it. I, I want to I join this congregation and live my life out in service right, right here with these people. Maybe you're called to do that. Maybe, and the good old Baptist word is still rededication. Maybe you're here and you're recognizing, as I am this morning, that 
your life really is not what it should be on a moment-to-moment basis. Maybe you're recognizing that you need to embrace more change than you've truly embraced. Maybe you will want to stand where you are in a moment and ask God for forgiveness for that and then reaffirm your pledge to live an abundant life the way that you know that it can be lived. Or maybe you want to come down here and visit with one of the members of this great staff for this church. I don't know any of that. But like I said, I do know the Holy Spirit is here. Would you bow with me as we pray? Oh, Father, I thank you for the blessings of of this day, this moment. And I thank you for bringing us together in this place. I thank you for every person for every family. Father, we thank you for loving us in ways beyond anything that we can comprehend. And we just ask this morning that you give us the strength in this instant to be the people that you've called us to be and then keep us, keep us always faithful. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.